Thank you for meeting us back for another episode of Commitment Matters. We have a super special guest today that I know you'll really enjoy. Meg Myers Morgan is here to talk about our careers. She's an award-winning author, a college professor, a keynote speaker, as well as a certified executive coach. Her latest book called Everything is Negotiable is based on her TEDx talk, and she's a regular contributor to Chief Learning Officer magazine on the topic of executive coaching. She holds a PhD and an MPA from the University of Oklahoma and is certified in executive coaching from Columbia University. I found Meg's insights valuable and her energy absolutely infectious, and I think you will too. Our conversation works its way through a lot of subjects, including some skills you might have forgotten when you're negotiating, how we get stuck sometimes when we're trying to make decisions, how to have it all, the differences between men and women in approaching a negotiation, the trap of being a perfectionist, and how our brains can effectively play a game of hide and go seek with our own selves. Many of you have confessed to reaching a stage that looks and feels like burnout, and Meg helps people identify the difference between a brain that is just bored and feeling stuck in a rut versus one that really needs to make a change. It can be confusing to sort through all of your own stuff and make good sense of it. Sometimes a seasoned observer can help us cut through the noise and get to the meat of the matter. Meg is a master of it, and I hope her wisdom can help remind you of some things you might have forgotten. Now, age and gender do come up a fair amount in this conversation, but that's okay. We are in an industry that is majority female, and let's face it, none of us are getting any younger either. So whether you're female or not, there will be something Meg shares that will help you work better with yourself and with others. And finally, this episode is especially for Miss McKenna. You were born an excellent negotiator. I hope no one ever convinces you that you shouldn't keep it up. So now please enjoy my conversation with the curious and wise Dr. Meg Myers Morgan. Meg Myers Morgan, thank you for being on Commitment Matters. Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, we're excited to have you here. I had the opportunity to see you speak a few weeks ago at a title and settlement industry conference and knew you would be just a wonderful guest to have for our listeners. Title and settlement industry is a very female dominated industry. So many of our workers, producers, and managers are women. We're going to say that word woman a lot today, but before we get too far down that path, we have a lot of male listeners too. And so I wonder if you had some thoughts of why this same messaging is important for men to hear. How should men listen to this conversation, do you think? Welcome, men. I actually have a lot of people in audiences like you were at that are increasingly becoming more and more male-dominated. And they tend to be the ones that will come up to me after a talk and tell me, oh, that really, I really related to that. Or, you know, I struggle to negotiate. Mm -hmm. And so I've learned in years of working with women that this isn't necessarily exclusive to women. I just think there may be more obstacles for women. So there's always something that men can take away. Uh, but beyond that, we just, we need our male allies. We need people to know kind of what our struggles are. And mm -hmm. we're not really, or I'm not really against men in any way. 
They're some of my favorite people. Yeah, there's, I, I married one. I know. Big fan. <laughs> Big fan. In many ways has been the the person that has kind of helped me a lot on this journey. And so I think it's about that partnership. So I think I think these concepts apply to men and women. And I'll also just say, I'm a professor at the University of Oklahoma. So half of my students are male. I just tend to see more obstacles in front of women, but that's not, that's a pretty blanket statement. So final word, welcome men, pay attention. That's, that's don't be scared. It'll be okay. <laughs> well, one of the things that you mentioned, and I want to talk about your book extensively, your book, the title of which everything is negotiable. One of the things that you brought up there that was just really eye-opening for me was I think women and men tend to negotiate about the same amount in any given day or life. The difference is how much time women spend negotiating within ourselves. And maybe men don't see us doing that, but we know that that's going on all the time. And it sounds like your view might be that we spend so much time negotiating with ourselves, in a lot of cases, that prevents us from going out and negotiating with others effectively. Is that fair? That's exactly right. And I'll give an example as to how I kind of got to where I could see this was the hang-up. I teach a leadership and management class pretty regularly with graduate students. So these are people in their 30s, sort of mid-career. And I sometimes divide the class by gender just to talk about the differences. And every time I do that, the same theme emerges, which is that they're battling the same battle. They have the same concerns. They all want, you know, raises or or better work-life balance or whatever, but that the women carry the concern over how they're being perceived. So it's not enough to even know what it is that they want and ask for that, but then they're worried, okay, if I ask for that, Am I going to look a certain way or am I going to be punished in some way for asking for the same thing a man would? And so I think that's where it comes is that we start to then, you know, hedge. And I think there's just a lot of sort of conditioning with how we treat women. And I can see that, you know, I'm raising two little daughters. I can kind of see the differences and sometimes how we talk to little girls versus little boys. And so it's just this culmination of things that I think makes women, I wouldn't even say doubt, but I would definitely say hedge more. And so you're right. It becomes this sort of internal negotiation of, am I worth it? Should I ask? And if I do, am I going to be punished or seen in a bad light? What will someone think of me? For example, I always say women won't ask for raises because they're worried that people will think they're greedy or ungrateful for the job offer. And I'm sure, I know men think that too, but I don't think men have to worry as much or be as careful about how they're being perceived. And I say that from watching in the classroom when we divide and the men will say, oh, I've never worried. I've never worried about how someone's going to perceive something I say in a meeting. You know, and all of us are like, oh, we have to be really careful in a meeting to not be not be too aggressive. Um, and so we don't even know that we hold that concern. It's so eye-opening. It's such a great point. And just to hear that difference that the men in mass will generally say, well, no, I've, I've never thought about that. I mean, if if I ask something and they don't like it, They've got a problem. I don't have a problem. And we, as women, presume there's a problem before we even ask. Right. That's right. And not only that, that maybe we're the problem. <laughs> maybe that probably the problem is us. Well, we got to dig down into the book then because there's so much other good stuff in there. Again, the title is Everything is Negotiable. And I'm interested into why you picked that topic or, or how you stumbled towards it or ran towards it, whichever it was. And also, why does the idea of negotiating break some people just out into hives? 
Stumbled is the absolute right word for what happened with this. So my oldest daughter is 11. And when she was born and she was born with her eyes open, which I should have known, okay, this is going to be a thing. It's on. <laughs> I always say she was born with her eyes open because she was looking around for something to criticize. <laughs> she's just very observant and critical in the best way. She talked early, very much a negotiator, which was not is not my general way of being. And so watching her, I mean, she's the perfect negotiator. She knows what she wants. She goes after everything. She doesn't take no for an answer. She does not care what her dad and I think about her. She will just continue to ask for things. And at the same time, I was sort of in the classroom teaching these 30-year-old women who couldn't even muster up the courage to ask their boss for a raise after 10 years. Mm. And I thought, what is happening between five years old and 35 years old that I don't want my daughter to lose that spark and I want my students to have that spark? And so I had to kind of reflect on, do I even have that spark? Do I even have that ability? And so I was asked to give a TED Talk uh, at our university, and I did it on that topic, on this idea of we've got to be better negotiators. Look at my daughter who can who can do this. And so I didn't set out to be the world's expert on negotiating, but what has happened since the book came out is traveling all over the world and actually giving either talks like you saw me do or actual salary negotiation training for women. Like it's become like a drum I beat all because my daughter's just really cool and hard-headed. And it was just this perfect framework to talk about the way that we ask for things that we want out of life. And my daughter is great at it. And hopefully I am too now. In the book, you give an example that's so, I think, so perfectly illustrates you're noticing that when she was a toddler, you tell the story of her asking for cookies. Would you share that with our listeners? Yeah, we would say, she would ask for something and we would say, no, not right now. And she would sort of put it on the the table. And so we would just sort of table things. And she, you know, sort of by the end of the night, we would have all of these things on the table that, you know, she wanted. And I was just always impressed that um, if she couldn't have a cookie, okay, well, what about a popsicle? Like she just wouldn't, um, I just was so exhausted by this constant negotiation until, until I actually looked at it and thought, I can study this child because she's so good at it. And then by the end of the very end of the night, the table would be completely clear because she had negotiated everything, often because I was just so tired, um, which is a great negotiating strategy. Just wear down, wear down your opponent. And so just sort of watching her just try to get dessert, it's, it's a master class in itself. Well, but she's consistently advocating for herself, yes, right? She and she doesn't have any negative connotations about that. She's just trying to propel her interest forward with you continually. Yeah. And I I actually, I mean, she's 11 now. And last night I made some comment like, hey, let's do reading tonight. Because I noticed that she was saying she was tired. And I said, let's, you know, reading is really helpful. And I mean, without thinking, she's arguing with me about that. I don't want to read. I, I read all day at school. I don't need to read. And all of a sudden we're like embroiled in this negotiation about how much she has to read. And I'm like, I don't even know that I care, but I'm now I'm like invested in it because she's, it is such a habit for her to stand up for herself that she doesn't even know she's doing it. And it's so new to me that I recognize it every time. And it's easy for me to get exhausted by it and say, oh my God, why are we arguing again? About everything. But honestly, it's just her standing up for herself. And I love that she doesn't see me as so scary. I want that to be my habit, that every single time I'm 
told or asked to do something, I can challenge that or at least advocate for myself. That's great. Well, and you work with college students, graduate students mostly, but those are people in their 20s and 30s. I'm in a number that starts with five. And I wonder what difference do you see between kind of the younger adults and their demographic and some of us that are, it hurts to say, older adults and in our demographic? What are some of the differences that you see there? I don't necessarily see a difference. I see the problem fester longer and therefore I don't want to say the symptoms, but the the sort of output of that to be stronger. The biggest thing that I see, especially in a population that's maybe younger, that that I may not see as much in, in somebody that's older than than 20 or 30, is this need to prove themselves. And so particularly because I'm in higher ed, which is already sort of an ego-driven space, I will have many talks with students, female students who are like at the end of the day, they're trying to prove something. And I will call that out. I'm like, who, what are you trying to prove and to whom? And that usually results in tears. That usually results in, I don't know what I'm trying to prove. I do see a little bit of that sort of, I don't know, tamp down as I work with an older population or in the 40s and above. I'm 38. So I even feel that need to prove something lessening. But I still think it's a question of of sort of what motivates me and what's the right way to assess my worth. Like, I think that's really tough, particularly if you have kids or you're trying to balance things or you're sort of in, you know, middle age and you're kind of looking around and just like, what do I want to put my energy in? Because I don't have as much to give to everything. So that's kind of what I see the difference. Some of my younger students are just raring to go and they're going to prove something. They don't know what, but they're going to prove something. And then as you get older, I feel like it's okay. Where do I put my energy? Because it's not a finite amount. It's not a finite amount. And I will tell you, after the pandemic, my big priority is how do I conserve it? How do I conserve this energy and what is worth putting it in? Not only what is worth getting upset about, but actually what meeting is worth me going to, right? Like Because in the pandemic, we sort of were all virtual. And so when we came back, it was like, what's worth me getting in the car <laughs> and going to me? And I just love this framework of like, what is worth it to me? And I think that is a question that I've only been able to ask as I got older. I think that's really fair. And yes, world events have really brought that question right to the fore. And, you know, you hear it described as, is this worth the commute? Or is this worth the time out of my leggings? Or <laughs> I know we're getting on kind of a gender generalization train here. And I know that that's there's exceptions to everything, and we're going to work really hard not to get canceled in this conversation. <laughs> but I think men generally get raised up hearing about responsibilities, and women now tend to get raised up hearing more about choices. Not all women are going to feel that way. Not all men are going to feel that way. And I think that it might not be as true today as it once was. But I think, you know, when you go back to the question with the student of who are you trying to impress, I think there gets to be so much pressure on women that you have these choices now that we didn't always have. And it's just so critical to make the right choice. You know, don't blow this this buffet of choice that you've recently been given. And one of the tactics in your book that I think is fascinating is you mentioned that making one choice 
does not eliminate making another choice also. I know people want to hear you talk about yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. I just found like students and even myself, it's like we think if we make one choice, we've closed the door on everything else. And I always point and I do in the book about if you've ever ordered a drink from Starbucks, if you make one choice, you have to keep, you get more and more choices, right? I want a Vinti. Okay. Do you want this type of, mm-hmm. I mean, it just keeps going. And so I sense this analysis paralysis with people who are like in the middle. I were, A lot of my coaching clients are like, I'm having to make a big decision. And that's sort of where they find me. And so they're trying to make this big decision or this big choice. And it's this concern that if I close door number one, I've missed door number two. And I just always say, my favorite phrase to say to people is, you can't ruin your life. Like you can't, like, could you make a lot of mistakes over and over and over and over and over again and potentially make your life worse? Yes. Hmm. But you're not going to make one choice that will ruin everything. But a lot of people will say, oh, if I don't do this, it, it'll just be terrible. I say, well, what? What if you don't? Well, I'll get fired. Oh, okay. Okay. You'll get fired. And then what? Well, then I'll, I'll lose my house. Right. And so like, there's this one thing they're worried about and they're going to end up homeless. Like that's the, <laughs> I can't choose wrong or I'll be homeless. So I'll think, yes, I'll just the homeless not- paradox. If I, and I do this too, right. If I don't yes. make the right decision, it'll be terrible for my kids and they'll grow up, you know, in this way or that way. That is, it's just never the case. The stakes are never that high on any choice. Well, and we set kids up like eighth grade. We start asking them, what are you going to be? So we know what classes you should take in high school. And then, and you should already know what your major is going to be. And you get students then coming in saying, I don't know if I should apply to this graduate program because I want to have kids. And you're like, what? Yeah. Yeah. I have a lot of people that are my favorite, my favorite story that I talk about in the book is a student who like we met for coffee and she's like, I want to do this program, but I'm having children. And I was like, yeah, you can do both. Like, that's that's a thing. And she was just unconvinced. And could she get it done before she had the kid? Like, she just had in her mind that there was going to be the right time for something. And that's, I, I always say life is like everything or nothing. So she winds up doing the program and then graduates and a year later has a kid. So she put in all this work and effort of like, how am I going to make them both work? It didn't even, it didn't even pan out. Like we, the worries that we have in our head about how to make it all work are never the situation. And I've had plenty of students that bring their newborn babies to class. So, I mean, like you, you just make it work, but we have this belief that there's like the right time for something or the perfect time for something. And that's, that's just silly. (laughs) It's just silly. You just kind of have to sign up for something and then you'll make it work. Well, it keeps you from doing the first thing. Right. (laughs) Right. So you do so nothing. Just, yeah, you just it just keeps you in this kind of floatsome, jetsome state. You never really get locked into this past that you think is so certain and predefined, but you never get started. We just wrap our capstone for the students that are graduating in my program. And all of them said the pandemic was crazy because it allowed me the chance to come back to school. But also what a terrible time to come back to school in the middle of a pandemic. And I was like, that's exactly right. Like, it's going to be the best Worst thing ever. Like, that's that's how it goes. Yes. Well, and that brings me to another one of the tactics you have, which, again, sorry, but also brilliant. Because women, we've been having this debate for some generations now about, can you have it all? What do we have to do to have it all? And there was, I think, a famous quote about, well, you can have it all, but just not all at once. But yours, I think, is better. And you say you can have it all by never giving your all 
oh my gosh, please say words yeah. about that. I cannot stay on the phrase. You got to give it your all. And that's not true. And that's super dangerous. And so I always tell students, just give your sum. Just give me your sum. And so I'll have students that are really stressed out. You know, I'm, I've got a mortgage and a job and kids and I'm trying to do this school. And I'm like, yeah, just give me some. I just need some. And that's like really relaxing to them to say like, you know, I'll have students that are like, no, I really want to give school my all. I just, I only want to do it when I can give it my absolute all. And I'm like, yeah, I don't want your all. That's not something, I don't want it. You can have it. Just give me a little bit, just a little bit of yourself. And I think when we have that mindset, we're suddenly much more open to more things and we're not putting a lot of pressure on ourselves. No one needs your all, not even your kids, especially your kids. Especially your kids. Please don't give them your all. If you give something your all, particularly at work, and I coach a lot of clients about this, they will take it, right? Like this is this is a little bit of boundary setting of I'm going to give you some and I'm going to keep some for myself. And that's kind of the that's that's where I'm at with my energy. I will give you some and I'm going to keep most of it. Well, my body physically relaxed and sort of exhaled when I read in the book, giving it your all, whatever the it is. You physically can't do it, and emotionally you shouldn't. Correct. And being given that permission, first of all, is a complete shift from how I came up, how I was raised, and then just the, oh, right, you know what? It took Einstein basically to tell me, not only can you not do that, you shouldn't do that. (gasps) And also, why would you? Well, I don't even have a good answer for that. Well, because I'm supposed to, I think would be my only answer. Because I'm supposed to. You said you felt your body relax. What were you carrying? What were you trying to give your all to? Oh, this is the same question for the student, isn't it? (laughs) I think it was coming up when I came up, the expectation was if you were going to succeed in business, which I knew I really wanted to do, you almost had to don a more masculine approach personality, appearance, je ne sais quoi, all those intangibles. And that because you were a female in a world where there weren't, there still weren't that many professional females, you had better be 10x better than the person next to you. You had better, like, it's just a constant overproving of your right to be in the room or where you are, or be taken seriously. And I think there are so many people, many of whom are women, who it's a newsflash to hear you physically can't give everything your all, and emotionally you shouldn't give everything your all. I mean, I have so many female friends and counterparts, you probably do too, who just go and go and go and go and go until they hit the wall and collapse in tears. And what people see is, oh God, there's a woman crying again. It's that, again, just like not seeing the internal negotiations with ourselves, we really don't see how we are really trying to give our all every place we are. And some of the places we physically aren't, we're going to think about it all so that we can give it our all when we get there. And that just sounds toxic. So shortly after you saw me speak, I was speaking at another event and one woman talked about her experience, which I think is relevant here, that she was like an SVP with four other, the other SVPs were men. She was the only woman, but she had the most direct reports and she was the only person that didn't have an administrative assistant. 
And so she asked for these things from her boss and he wouldn't give her more money. He wouldn't give her an administrative assistant. So she decided the only way she was going to get more was to do less. And so she just stepped back and he would ask for a report and she would say, I can get you that, but I'm going to need to borrow somebody else's administrative assistant to help me. And it became this issue of finally seeing her not perform that got her. And then he raised her salary, got, you know, got her all the resources. I want to put a disclaimer that that was, I mean, I do think the tactic was right. That when we don't get what we want as women, we go harder. We try harder. We work harder. We put in more effort. We burn ourselves out and we are very willing to self-sacrifice. When you kind of stop and do less, you actually get more. And so sometimes when I'm feeling like I am not getting what it is that I want, I think it's usually a sign I'm working too hard or I'm trying too hard or I'm over kneading the dough. <laughs> like I'm just, I'm, I'm trying way too hard to make this work. And so at the university, at one point, we lost some budgeting and some resources. And my response to that was, well, I will just work harder. And so for years, the university sort of got everything that they were already getting for less money. That does not put me in a good negotiating position to then go in and say, but wait a minute, this thing that I've been doing for years, I am now upset about. So I just try really hard for people to think about, don't work through that pain, you know, document it. These are the things I need in order to be able to work at that level, but we're not going to give our all. We're not going to sacrifice our all because who would that be for and why would that be? Right. Well, and listen, one of the things that makes me allergic is, you know, you get in a meeting full of people, there's men, there's women, and at some point, someone will either say out loud or someone that will just take it upon themselves to take notes for the meeting. And 99.9% of the time, who's doing that? It's a woman. There's actually tons of studies about how women are asked to close the door of a meeting. They're asked to take the notes. They're asked to clean out the refrigerator. And if we're not asked, we'll just jump up and do it anyway. Correct. Asked to plan the birthday parties. Asked, And often women will come in to like a board meeting or a meeting of any kind in a conference room and sit on the perimeter and not sit, I mean, talk about this in the book. Like I, I work really hard to sit at the head of a table when I can sit at the head of a table. Does it make me comfortable? No, but I'm still going to do that because I've just seen too many women jump into service. You know, you talked about men being told about responsibility. Women, I think by and large are conditioned to be in service. Yes. Particularly a maternal type of service. Yes. So it's natural that you're going to plan the birthday party. Because you're the woman, and I apparently know where the birthday candles are. And no- and you know how to do it better. Right. Nobody else could possibly know how to do this. Uh-huh. And that sort of weaponized incompetence of, well, men just don't know, we just continue to pick up that slack. My sister's an engineer. She's one of the only female engineers in her firm. And she will constantly have men, often who are under her in rank, ask for her to take take the minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and it's okay to do that, I feel like, but you have to ask yourself, especially if you're volunteering to do it, why am I doing that? Am I doing that so people will like me? Am I doing it because I'm the best note taker in this room? Am I doing it because I'm not sure what else I bring to the room so I can at least provide the group with this? I think you really have to check your intentions with that, don't you? Yes, absolutely. My guess is there's always, it's always fear-based. If I don't do this, what is at stake? 
And the more that you can sort of sit with that discomfort, right? So I just encourage my sister, don't go into the meeting with a pen and paper. And so she just stopped taking a pen and paper, which felt really weird to her because she didn't want to look unprepared. I'm like, is anyone else carrying a pen and a paper? So just don't, don't have a pen and paper. Just don't even let it be an option. But it's that, or at least for me, I'll speak from my experience. I want to jump in and not make another person, particularly a man, uncomfortable. I'm aware I do this. This is not okay. But that if somebody's like, Meg, take the notes, the more sort of offended I am, the more I will cover so the other person doesn't have the misfortune of feeling like they offended me. I'm working on it. (laughs) I don't want you to feel bad for having insulted me. For having extremely offended me. Conversely, something like that activity, that note taking for the meeting, because you're in the room and notes need to be taken, can sound so small. And it can be like, well, what's the big deal? But it's those little 1% things that even just thinking about them, even if you stop and pause and recognize and think about your intention, you can still do them, but it's a change in your mindset. It does then become intentional. It does become, you can answer the question, I'm doing this because. And it can really just start to, I think, help some of your other thoughts about things take shape, maybe. And I would say, for the male listeners, if that gets done and you get called on it, all you got to say is thank you. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. The goal for any man or anyone that's called out is to just say thank you. That's really, we're just wanting to bring it up. And the reason that women won't bring it up is they don't want to deal with that uncomfortable defensiveness if they do say something. My concern of, I don't want you to feel bad that you offended me. I just want you to know it's tough. Yeah, it is tough. And I think for a lot of women, negotiation equals conflict in their mind. Yes, yes. And we are very much taught to keep conflict at the absolute minimum until we blow our tops and spill over and then we're hysterical and then we shouldn't be listened to because we're hysterical. Right. But we have to, I think, decouple that negotiation does not equal conflict. Back to the story with your daughter. It is, there's nothing wrong with self-advocacy. So we get our conflict resolution skills. We're not taught these. We get it from our parents, right? And so if you, any of us right now thinking about how our parents handled conflict, good or bad, avoidant or aggressive, however that looked, we sort of take that on and then we aren't really taught any other way. And so when you come at somebody with, I have a need, someone's immediate response might be, oh, I'm going to get less. You're taking something from me and I'm going to get less, right? And so my daughter asking for a cookie in some way triggers me to think she's taking something from me. And and maybe as a parent, it's my authority, right? And so we immediately kind of get in this mindset of conflict. But I always say that conflict, it's it's negotiation is collaboration. You're working together and you're going to get a win-win together. And so having that mindset as a parent, has helped me have that mindset with other negotiations. If I'm negotiating with my boss, say for a raise, he's going to get a a happier employee who doesn't feel resentful, right? So he or she. And so it's just about like not thinking of it so much as conflict, as thinking of it as how can we work together for this outcome that I need. But in there, people are going to get, people can get defensive and can get rowdy. (laughs) And that's okay. Just like let that happen, right? And acknowledge and and move on. And I think that's such a key thought shift between negotiation equals conflict versus negotiation equals collaboration. Because 
women generally, oh, I hate all these overgeneralizations, but it's true. Women generally do pretty well with collaboration if they realize that's the situation they're in. No, you're right. I think that's that's not only a generalization, but there's certainly studies that that show that women are more collaborative and empathetic. And so if you think about, hey, I'm going to go in and talk to my boss or go home and talk to my spouse, and we're going to work on this goal together for me, that's a negotiation. It's not a zero-sum game, right? It's let's work on this. I need this thing. I need this goal. Help me achieve it. Let's achieve it together. Um, And that's kind of what my daughter does, right? Like, you're not understanding. I'm getting dessert, so you can figure out what dessert that's going to be. But at the end of the night, I'm getting dessert. That's going to happen. Um, and so we, you know, we have to kind of work on it together and negotiate. I love it. Well, another one of your tactics, tenants, is, and this one's important too, don't confuse your wants yeah. with someone else's. Yeah. This is so easy to fall into that trap. I'd love for you to just talk for hours about it, please. Yes, I can. T- I will talk for several hours about this. Okay. So it's a story that I tell on stage was I had a, a client call me from New York City and she had she wanted to renegotiate her salary. And so I always want to know the motivation behind this because why people arrive at money being what they need is important. And she said, well, I I have an office, a person that's right next to me in this office. And I just found out, his name's Joe. I just found out he makes twice as much as I do. And he's an idiot, Meg. And I was like, well, he might be an idiot, but he negotiated a higher salary. So he knows something, right? And I was like, but your your basis for wanting a raise cannot be I want it because he has it, right? We have to figure out what's unique about your want and what's unique about what you provide to the company. We really have to get, we really have to talk about you. And that's hard. Like that's something that people honestly don't spend a lot of time reflecting on. They just see somebody else has it. We definitely do this in the world of social media. We look around and they have that, or this house looks like this. I saw the other day on Instagram, like these new design trends. And I'm like, oh crap, I have to redesign my house again. Like, right. It's so easy to get yep. you know, sort of uh, swept up in that. So she and I really worked on, you know, what's your value add? And so she went in there and she was successful getting getting the raise. But when she called me to tell me, she said, I'm, I'm proud because I went in there proud of myself and not resentful of my colleague. And that's what can happen is this resentment and jealousy for what other people have and assume that's your reason for wanting it. And I always say, like, my girls don't get to do that. They don't get to say, well, I want it because the other one has it. We have no idea why Joe was being paid that. And spending any amount of time speculating is not a good use of energy. What is a good use of energy is what is it that I need and want and deserve and I am worth? And focusing on yourself is always the strategy. (laughs) Because if you're looking at other people and deciding what you want, that's ultimately not going to bring you any happiness whatsoever. Well, if you're always basing that off of your wants, off of externalities, it's always going to be external. Yeah, exactly. Anybody that's worked for a while on a long-term goal, either personal or project, you know, you have that that high at the end of you reached your goal and that's all great. And then that sort of fades away and it's on to the next thing. And if you're not looking inward, I think, and becoming very internally driven about that, then happiness is always almost to be attained, but you never quite get there. Or if you do, it's just going to be fleeting, right? Yes. And my other, my other thing that I'd say in this vein, my mentor told me this and It's that you should never confuse conspiracy with incompetence, that you can start to create these stories like 
you know, Joe, Joe's the favorite or whatever, or, you know, you'll see a couple of people in a conference room and you'll just assume they're talking about you, right? Like there's, we build these conspiracy stories. It's never about you. The only person that can make it about you is you. Yes. But you have to let go of the first part, which is what your internal dialogue is trying to say, which is they're making it about you. Correct. They're not. Yeah, they're not. They're not thinking about you. They're not even looking at you. They're not noticing you. And that's really important because I think a lot of women, well, it's been my experience that a lot of women who kind of overdo in one or every aspect of their life, then often wonder why the rewards just don't follow. I think we have the mindset of someone is going to see what I'm doing. They're going to under, they're going to also see what I've giving up to give all this effort here. It's just going to be so self-evident and here will come the promotion. Here will come the race. And then when that doesn't happen, it's just immediate recipe for exacerbation. Just what, why, well, why? I thought they'd notice. And that can be a very different dynamic, whether the they that you're talking about is male or female, whether it's a boss or a peer level. There are so many things into that that you, at minimum, I think you'd have to be adaptable. But the sounds like the one philosophy that would take care of all those scenarios is just being entirely self-guided. Self-guided and, and honest with what it is you're expecting. Uh, bosses are not watching you and waiting in the wings to give you the promotion, you're going to actually have to say you want it. In fact, my husband a few years back when he, I mean, this is quite a few years back, but when he reached up into leadership, somebody else in the company said, I had no idea you were even interested in leadership. And he had sort of sat there kind of waiting on it. And it wasn't until he said, I'd like to do that. And I always think about my mother will say that my husband gives the best gifts. And she, oh, you, oh, your husband just, he's so romantic. He gives you the best gifts. And eventually, after several years of marriage, I said, mom, I tell him what I want. Oh, I didn't. Oh. I set him up for success. It's not some mystery, right? Like, yeah. that. not, I mean, this idea that your spouses are going to be mind readers is mm-hmm. just as key of getting rid of as thinking your bosses know how to manage you or your bosses know what you're expecting. We just have to be really upfront. I am expecting a promotion in the next two years. How are we going to get there? They may not know that. I am expecting jewelry, and this is the link for you to buy it at. It's not only being self-guided. It's being really honest and upfront with people about what it is that you want. Well, yes, and and in that context, the first conversation with the superior, I expect a raise in the next two years, let's craft a way for that to happen, is so much more effective than... Can't you see everything I've done for the last five years? I, I don't even have any of my own hair left in my head. And you didn't give me a raise. Where, do, where does that go? And they had no idea that you wanted that, right? So it's about getting to the problem before it's a problem. And the only way you do that is really be centered in what drives you, motivates you, and what you're looking for. And that's why I, I work with people on what's your motivation, because money is always representing something. And for my client in New York, it was very clear that she just wasn't feeling as valued as Joe. That had a little bit to do with money, but a lot to do with other things. Mm-hmm. And even knowing that about herself going into that conversation is really key because, yeah, the salary is going to feel great momentarily. But then what if you still don't feel valued? So we just really kind of have to know what it is that we're asking for and why we're asking for it. 
Another thing you talk about is getting out of your own way. Preach it. How do we get in our own way and how do we get out? Yeah, I think everyone's sort of stuck behind, like they're the only obstacle in their own way. And a lot of people are going to tell you no. They'll have a long list of things and people that are in their way. And like even getting this book published, I can't even count how many rejections it was. I mean, in the hundreds, like even getting an agent and get it is any any book that you look at in the bookstore has is published on mounds and mounds and mounds of rejection. Any success you see is mounds and mounds and mounds of, of failure underneath it. What could also happen, though, is in that rejection for me to say, OK, they're right. And then just just stop. And that would be me getting in my way. They I had to learn early on with rejection. It is absolutely not personal. I didn't believe it. After a while, I was like, oh, that's sad. They didn't want to publish it, but it's still going to get published, right? And you just kind of keep having to believe in yourself. But the journey to even getting that book published was me having to to get out of my own way and send the letters and send the manuscript and you know, get it, get it out there. And I just find that most people, before they can even get rejected by someone else, have already taking themselves out of the race somehow. And isn't that oftentimes about just your narrative in your own head that's almost default? Like you can you can sail along smooth and I feel strong today and I am woman, hear me roar and all that until somebody says, uh, no, thanks for this, you know, this major life project of yours, no. And something can turn, change in our head. And then the narrative goes from, yay, I'm going to do this. I'm making progress but to... Oh, well, why bother? See, what have I been doing? I've I've made all the wrong choices. Your brain looks for the confirmation of what we believe. So if you continually believe you're not good enough, you're going to keep finding that evidence. And so you just kind of have to have like radical self-compassion and radical self-love and radical self-confidence. And it's got to kind of fuel you. And that's one of the reasons that I talk a lot in the book about just doing a bunch of stuff. Because if I were pinning all of my hopes on just doing the book, my career would look like a whole lot of rejection. And instead, I do a little of this and a little of that. And I give my sum to a lot of things, which makes me not feel so high stakes about each rejection. I can get a little confidence over here and then I can try something over here. And and that's just how it tends to work for me. But you have to kind of get comfortable with rejection And know that that's like the stepping stone to success, which feels very counter. It's a not yet, right? So much more sore than a no. It's a not yet. Not yet. And maybe not in this configuration, but okay, I'll find another one. Well, and I say in the book, like, yeses take a lot of time. Getting to yes takes a lot of time. No is almost immediate. So if you're still waiting for the thing to happen, it's because yeses take time. That's really good. Lastly, you talk about how important it is to own the terms of life and negotiation. That might be a phrase that people haven't heard before. Tell them what you mean by that. I think the way that we talk about ourselves, the way that we own our narrative, the way that we craft our story, my best example of this is working with people, clients or students on resumes. And they'll say, well, I've got to put this and I've got to put that and I hope I can do this and make it look good on my resume. And I'm like, you know, you get to write your resume. You can write it. Like, don't lie. But you can write that story however you want. You're not bound by any template. There's no 
right or wrong way to do it. It is your narrative to craft. And so I always tell students, think about your resume as the story of your career. What is your story? And that, for whatever reason, helps them really think about their career in a beautiful way, not in a checkboxy way. But the way that we talk about ourselves, the way that we sometimes are self-deprecating, I mean, those things can sort of erode how far we go. And so I just tell people to be mindful of sort of owning who you are, owning that narrative, writing that narrative, and whatever those terms are that you set. One thing I talk about a lot is just my own biography, which, you know, my bio is like on my website and they, they say it, they say it before I speak. And like, that's, that's, that's my chance to sort of tell the story and every single chance you get to say who it is that you are, women will interpret it as bragging and that's hard to get over. But every single chance you get to sort of tell, tell who you are and own those terms, take it. Cause if you don't, if you don't, someone else will. Well, right. And as you do that, you will find other people will accept that narrative and you'll hear it back about you. They will believe it. Like that is an efficient way for them, for their thinking to be shaped. And imagine if you are always the note taker. Mm-hmm. Oh, Meg's Meg's our Meg's our, our great note taker, right? And then that's how we see Meg and that's how Meg sees herself. And I don't want to be the note taker in the room anymore. So how do I change that narrative? Maybe I don't show up with the pen and paper anymore. And maybe I I start talking about things that I am. I'm not your note taker. I'm your strongest salesman or whatever the case may be. And we sort of start crafting what it is we want people to see us as instead of waiting for them to see us in this way that we may not even see ourselves as yet. One of the things that you said when you were speaking is that you really encourage mentors and mentees. And you you made a great, again, a powerful statement because I think a lot of us think we either do that or have that. And and you said, if you have not been asked to be a mentor or, or you have not asked to be a mentee, regardless of what your functional relationships looks like, you are not a mentor and you are not a mentee. I love that. What are your recommendations for people to do as an action item on that? Yeah. So if they don't know they're your mentor, they're not. They're just someone you admire from afar. The studies on mentoring, particularly with women in the workforce, are really compelling and really positive. So if you have a mentor, no matter their gender and really no matter their industry, the two things that are really key are working on the same goal. So you have to, one, ask them to be your mentor and tell them sort of what your goal is. And your goal may be broad. It may be, I just need confidence. Or your goal may be very specific, like I want a new job. And then the second thing is to get very regimented about when you meet and what that looks like. And so I always have students or community members have to ask me to be their mentor. And then they have to put calendar invites on my calendar. You, as the mentee, you've got to do the work. And I have some mentees that meet with me once a month and we set an hour and we go get coffee or we do Zoom. And they are sort of working toward a project or or not, maybe not a project, but they're working toward sort of this goal that we have established together. And that's effective mentorship, that kind of consistent. This isn't necessarily the same as a coach, but it is an ally in your team, an ally in your in your effort to sort of get where it is that you want to go, even if you don't quite know where that is. I love that. Another thing you recommend is 
getting over perfection or the concept that you're supposed to be perfect. And you talk about the good aspects of perfection and the bad outcomes of perfection. And I think a lot of people could benefit from hearing more about that. If there are good aspects, it's that we get closer to good, right? We may accomplish more, we may get a better product, but what I find perfection does is a mask for escaping judgment. Being beyond reproach. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh But we can't reach perfection. And so my favorite quote is done is better than perfect. And I remember like with the manuscript for this book, it had to be perfect when I handed it in to my editor for the first time, for the first time. And we went through six rounds of edits. And I thought, wow, I wonder why I was so worried about it being perfect. Mm -hmm. And then I looked around and thought, wow, most everything in life is a rough draft. Most everything in life, you know, if you're working on something at work, you're getting feedback from someone else, you're like, they're very, there's absolutely nothing that needs to be perfect because it's going to continually be evolving, often with the help of other people. So that process I was like, man, I don't have to be perfect. I just have to, I just have to get like a 70%, right? And then someone else can help me over the finish line. And I tell my students that too. I say, if you hand in a perfect paper, what is my purpose as a professor? What am I going to do with that? What? Why are you paying me? Where are you going to go? Yeah. Why are you here? So give me your rough drafts. And when I tell students, give me a rough draft, they turn in better work than when I say, give me a paper. And so sometimes I'll use that trickery with them. And I'll say, hey, just turn in a rough draft. And then I'll just grade it as the, as the final draft and we're done because the pressure is off. It's often a habit born in childhood that takes some inside work. But the freedom of not having to be perfect is, it feels so good that I just, mm-hmm. it's like pajamas. I don't want to get out of it. Exactly. Well, and I think a lot of people who have the perfectionism bug have the twin dragon that has to be slayed, which is procrastination. Yes, absolutely. Because that's the flip side. It's it's why I think a lot of people put off just getting underway is because there's all this pressure to be perfect. And so if you procrastinate and wait till the last minute, then you're just hacking something out. And then, well, I can't help that it's not perfect. It's like this allowance game we play with our own mind that just seems like such a waste of energy. I think it's absolutely that. I also think it's this weird belief that people's expectations are higher than they are. So I'm going to hand over this draft of this thing and, oh, Mary's going to have this really high expectation. I have no idea what you're expecting. You may be expecting nothing. And I've given you something, right? So then we're playing that mind game again of how are they going to perceive me? What were they expecting? Just volley it over. And I know Mary will volley it back if it's not, you know, good enough. And so kind of getting over this idea of what is the other person thinking? We spend a lot of time trying to manage other people's feelings and perceptions of us. And we don't even know what they are to begin with. And even if they told us they could be lying, right? Like there's no way to prove that. So it's just kind of a a waste of energy. You recounted in the book a story about when you were, you were young, I think you were 22-year-old early career person, and you were uh, working in marketing at a very large, I think, nonprofit, and you were in charge of five, six events a year. You know, it was your world, and hundreds and sometimes thousands of people were invited to, and you you just nailed it. You pulled it all off. It was great, maybe even nearly perfectly. And you tell the story about being asked at the holiday season to decorate the Christmas tree and all of the layers of thoughts that you had before you got to sort of the core experience. And I, 
I'd like for you to, if you would, tell that story again, because your levels of internal dialogue and attitude about it, all the way down to then just understanding what could be gained out of it, I think would be really helpful for folks. So I always tell my daughters, we focus on what we can control and what we can control is our attitude. And this is, that's the story about attitude because 22, I thought that I was a very, very important person. And I was the, I was the youngest person at the organization and also the lowest on the totem pole. But for some reason, I believed that I was more important than I was. And the CEO who was a woman, in her late 60s, like brought down a box of of ornaments and said, you'll be decorating the lobby Christmas tree. And I was very offended by this. And I went through all these stages of like, oh, it's just because I'm young and oh, it's just because I'm a woman and I was really um, just quite pissy about the whole thing. And so I went down there and I started like decorating it. And then she came out and criticized the way I was decorating it. And then that made me so mad because I thought you know, I'm only going to, I'm just putting these balls on this tree. I don't care enough. This isn't my thing. Uh, But then what wound up happening was uh, a good colleague who was actually at my wedding is still a good friend came out and he started decorating the tree with me. And then other people started to come down and decorate the tree and we put on music. And it wound up being, I'm getting goosebumps from this. It wound up being like the best day ever from decorating this Christmas tree. And the CEO came out, the one that had criticized And started showing us, oh, you've got to start from the inside of the tree. You put the balls on the inside of the tree and then you work your way out. No one had ever said this to me before. Mm -hmm. I'm 22. I've decorated a lot of Christmas trees. Like this wasn't, (laughs) I've, I've lived life. And by the end, this was the most gorgeous Christmas tree you've ever seen. And I just thought, man, I could have missed the opportunity to have this experience with my colleagues that was really bonding and important. I could have actually missed a lesson from this woman. I don't think at all that she was trying to be crappy to me and make me do the Christmas tree. I think it was actually kind of a nice thing to say, hey, you've done a lot of work. Why don't you you just come out here and decorate a Christmas tree? Why couldn't I have seen the fun in that? And so now you you bet your bottom that I decorate a Christmas tree from the inside out. And I'm very strict with my kids. I'm like, no, we got to go on the inside. So I just say like, as I move up in my career, I really try to stop in those moments where it feels like, am I being asked to decorate a Christmas tree? And I'm really annoyed at this. And I think, oh, I bet there's a lesson here. <laughs> I bet if I just hush and get the chip off my shoulder. And I talk in the book about like, I will clean up classrooms after class. Like That's not my job, but I will do it. I will do, I'll erase dry erase boards. I'll I'll make copies. I'll do all these things that maybe other faculty members do. Maybe they don't. It's not necessarily what we're supposed to do. But um, because I think there are lessons to be had in those small moments. And I think the attitude that we bring to those moments determine whether or not we're going to learn them. And I think in this entire conversation, you have given such a great example of what a professional coach can help us stop and realize. And I'm sure it's different for people that are in different places within their career or have different goals or are feeling a little out of sorts and they're not sure why. I think all of this that you have illustrated brings all that very clearly and cleanly into view. Practically, how does it work? If somebody said, you know, this kind of stuff sounds like the stuff I need, but I don't know how to take it from listening to someone in a podcast and reading their book to engaging with with the coach aspect of it. So how does that work? So you go to my website and you email me and we set up a little 15 minute introduction call. And then from there, should we decide to work together? I meet with clients 
for as long as they want. But usually, I mean, and by that, I mean, each session is 50 minutes, but we can meet I usually say every other week is best to allow yourself some reflection. And I sometimes I meet with clients for three months and then they feel good and they're ready to go. And I've been working with some clients for over five years. So it just kind of depends on on what you need. I will say that, you know, I work with a coach. I don't think you should ever work with a coach who isn't being coached, but it's a it's an unconscious process. You're really looking at um, your obstacles, the way you feel, your patterns, your behavior. You're just really having somebody who doesn't have an agenda because I don't have to live anyone else's life. Um, but sometimes your spouses or your friends or your colleagues have an agenda. A coach wouldn't have an agenda. And so you can just have this objective point of view. And it's just someone who's 50% your champion and 50% your challenger. So you've got someone who's in your corner, but it's also calling you on your crap. And it's um, it's changed my life to be coached and it's changed my life to coach others. And it's allowed me to have peace and clarity is the biggest thing that comes from it. And it's allowed me to get more by doing less, knowing exactly where to put energy because I now know sort of what's motivating me and what I'm after. And once you know really what you're after, you actually realize you don't have to do as much to get it because you're not just sort of all over the place. So yeah, that's how it works. Well, it's fascinating. Well, I've very much enjoyed the discussion today, and I hope that as people need a keynote speaker or find themselves in need of an individual coach or even just want some more information on this, that they'll pick up your book. I can't thank you enough for being here today. As I said, I think you've helped a lot of people begin to think about things differently, and we are grateful to you. I've had so much fun. I hope we do this again sometime. Meg, thank you so much for a truly engaging and enlightening discussion. I won't soon forget the example you gave of the mental gymnastics you went through when you were asked at 22 to help put up the company Christmas tree. Our thoughts really can run away and do exotic dances all on their own, can't they? Yep. Now, if you'd like to hear more from Meg, the best way to reach her is, of course, linked in today's show notes. Maybe you'd benefit from some individual coaching or you're in need of a keynote speaker for an event or you'd like a copy of her book. And guys, it's really good. So until next time, keep trying on the thought that everything is negotiable and see how your thoughts shift as that concept settles in. Keep trying to understand yourself and everyone else. It's the only way to feel true connection. And don't try to constantly do more than you physically can or emotionally should. Do well, do enough, and call it good. Don't get a one-way ticket on the burnout train. We need you in good fighting shape to do what you do. Because what you do really matters. <laughs>